the one type of financial asset that is becoming a lot more interesting and difficult to deal with in separation and divorce are crypto wallets. So how do just we- gonna ask about that, Kim. That's fascinating. Okay. How do we find these things? How are they taxed? Uh-huh. What do we do with all of this? So there are many, many lawyers and many, many accountants who work in um, in a very you know challenging area of finance, and they're bumping up against these questions all the time. So the first thing is is how do we tax cryptocurrency? Is it is it taxed as business income? Uh-huh. Is it taxed as a capital gain? Right. Are people trading this stuff like crazy? Are they just sitting on it for years? That matters in terms of how it's it's taxed, and and taxation matters in divorce. The second question is is how do are people able to hide? these uh these wallets from Mm -hmm. the courts and from their from their lawyers Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Mallorick from Merrick Law. I'm joined today by my co-host, Evan Clark from Kahane Law. Hey there, Evan. How are you doing? I'm great as usual, Heather. How are you doing? I am well, thank you. Um, We have our very special guest, Kim McDonald, joining us today as well. Hello, Kim. How are you? Hello, Heather. I'm doing very well today. Thank you for asking. I feel like maybe we should address the elephant in the room, which is Kim's always our very special guest, but she's on every episode. What What is going on? Uh, well, I just keep showing up and you guys are too nice to, to get rid of me. Yeah, I think I think it's OK to say that um, Kim's an important part of this podcast, but she is not an official host. And there are reasons for that, uh, regulatory reasons, and that's okay. I think we can admit that. Um, Because of the nature of her job, and that's what we're going to talk about today is is what you do, Kim. So I just thought, you know, we've kind of like just mentioned you're a special guest, and I thought, you know, it's okay to be true, to be real with our listeners. (laughs) Because I will continue to show up. You're going to... I am the non-lawyer of our panel, so that makes this a very, uh, sort of a a broader perspective. I like to say you you keep us grounded, because Heather and I could easily feed off each other and uh, think we're like so just nailing it and just killing it and using these big words or something that we feel very important about using, (laughs) and then you help us realize we're just being... A little, you know, I don't want to say pretentious because I don't think we're pretentious, but talking a little too much shop, maybe. Yeah. Is that the way? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I appreciate Kim, how you help us, uh, help keep us real. Keep us grounded. 100%. Kim's here to keep us real. (laughs) Thank you. I I, love it. I'm happy to fulfill that role. Um, so I guess you're in the hot seat today. I keep using that phrase. I feel like it's not really all that hot of a seat though. I think we always have some pretty good chats, but, um, Kim, I'd like to know kind of what 
brought, I guess, first of all, what do you do? What are your certifications? I know you've got like an alphabet behind your name. Um, and how did you kind of come to be interested in the area, in the topic of law and divorce and separation, all of that stuff? Sorry, that's turning into a five part question. <laughs> Let's start with you and your qualifications. <laughs> so uh, for people just tuning in. This is your first podcast listening to us. My name is Kim MacDonald. I am a financial advisor and insurance advisor with MacDonald Advisory at Raymond James LTD. So I work at a extremely large investment firm and I have a few hats that I wear every single day. Uh, Heather, you were asking about credentials uh, in terms of what I'm able to do with people, uh, focusing on my licensing. So in the everyday world, people will call me up and ask uh, about investments. And I am licensed in uh, securities, which include stocks and bonds and preferred shares and anything under the sun in that department. I'm licensed uh, for options and derivatives, which is a unique licensing in my industry. And I have the licensing to participate participate in um, insurance contracts or helping people fill that that gap. So so every day uh, what I'm typically doing is working with my client base and we're helping them do um, any type of investments, insurance, or uh, solving some of their planning questions, um, which involves sometimes forecasting for the future. Sometimes it's today, how do we make decisions, whether it's contributing to our investments or paying off debts, what's the right thing to do. So uh, it's pretty broad what I'm tackling on a daily basis. And um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty busy gal, but um, uh, I, I do spend a lot of time writing exams, and I think it's important to do that. I have two credentials on the divorce side of, of finance. One is through a Canadian organization um, called the Academy of Financial Divorce Specialists. They have a credential called the Chartered Financial Divorce Specialist um, uh, designation and what it does is uh, gives people who are interested in financial planning it gives you a more specialized knowledge in in divorce in Canada. There's also an international organization and they offer the credential the chartered financial divorce analyst um, uh, designation and that's an that's more of a U.S. Um, program. They have a lot more resources uh, under their belts than our, our Canadian group, who's, who isn't that old. And they generally offer courses that we can take, um, participate in seminars. The Canadian organization has really actually ramped up a lot in that side. But the more common thing that you'll, the more common credential you'll see behind somebody in finance is the CDFA. And that's the international U.S. side. And we're actually slowly working our way out of that in Canada. So more commonly, if you're looking for somebody who has some sort of knowledge in finance and divorce, you're going to be looking for the CFDS 
credential. And, and I've done both of those exams um, to prepare me for sort of uh, the divorce talk and the divorce arena and, and all this good stuff. So I think that's, I think that's it. I have some other credentials, but not really that related to our podcast today. So Okay, uh, what's CFDS stand for again? Certified Financial Divorce Specialist. Okay, Certified Financial Divorce Specialist. Okay, yeah. uh, it's a mouthful. Yes. Okay, I, have, I have a follow-up question because you were just kind of rattled off a whole bunch of things. And um, <laughs> I think a lot, most people know what stocks are. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are going to know what options are. What are derivatives? Ah, yes. Well, it's kind of all lumped into that that options market. So the the option world has instruments that are sort of, it's hard to describe. It's, it's, it's a leveraged way of investing and, and investment pa- uh, products are packaged in a very special way when they're traded on the options market. Derivatives are a subset of that whole market and they're just almost like uh, investment products that are structured together to um, give investors something different to buy, a different kind of risk, a different kind of exposure. And um, generally, they are reducing risk in nature, but it's a very, very complicated part of the stock market. And um, there's very few advisors who are actually even licensed to trade in these markets. But the, the, the general idea is that we participate in options and derivatives to reduce risk in our own clients' accounts. That's mm. That's the basics of it. Um, You'll often only see these types of trades for very high net worth people because advisors with the credential don't have enough time in their day to do lots of these little trades. So they'll generally be doing it for large dollar amounts to protect larger monies, but not always. Um, But they are typically meant for risk reducing. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. I think most of my... Clear but not clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what derivatives are. There is something to do with options, something involved in there. I'm guessing it's something similar to like um, you, the way that you're using them to reduce risk. Is that something similar to how you'd use a, a call or a put on in relation, like holding re- those related to stocks that you hold? So like a covered call or that type of thing? Yeah, but there's a a much larger uh, breadth of products out there. So the the way all of this market originally started was that people needed to mitigate their risk. And it had a lot to do with agricultural products. So hedging your risk, if you were a corn producer, how are you going to make sure that you got a good deal on your corn down the road, uh, not knowing what weather conditions would be like and what the price of corn would be? So a long time ago, these products started getting created to help farmers take away some of their risk when they're selling large uh, crops. Then the market started to evolve over time. So there was this one market where you would treat it almost like um, like a, a barter system without any rules and regulations. And then it started shifting towards a mark, an actual marketplace so there could be regulation involved. There's less risk when things are regulated so people are, feel more comfortable participating in that. 
to this day, we still have this over-the-counter market that you can trade in. And then there is this market, like the more regulated market that people can trade in. And there's tons of different types of products out there that we use to hedge out people's risk, whether it's buying those future uh, dated um, risk mitigation products like mitigating the risk on corn or oil or soy or anything along those lines. And then there's other ways we do it, as you referenced, Evan, um, writing calls and and buying calls and writing puts and, and buying puts. There's all these interesting things that we can do uh, to, to help clients depending on what it is they own and what risk they need to mitigate but i mean in the in in the financial crisis there were other derivative products that were that were at play which we probably aren't going to get into today um we could probably do a whole other podcast on this topic but um there's just a huge number of things that we use to swap out risk to hedge risk and um generally it's a very complicated area of the stock market so what does that have to do with being a certified financial divorce specialist? Absolutely nothing, Evan. <laughs> and you know what? That's okay because it's still, um, I think it's relevant in that that's part of your professional background of what you're dealing with. You have a good knowledge of um, financial products. Uh-huh. And that's obviously important if you're going to help somebody with their finances when going through a divorce. So I think it is related, Kim. Yeah, you've got such a micro knowledge of what's going on in finances, but um, also have this big picture awareness and skills and planning kind of training, right? And ability, is that fair? Sounds great. Yes. Sounds great. I think it's true. (laughs) (laughs) I think the more information we know, the broader our knowledge is, the more likely we're going to give the best answer. So we're not always going to get everything right. Lawyers aren't always going to get everything right. Accountants aren't always going to get things right. But the more knowledge we have, the more experience we have, the better answers we're typically going to give because it's going to involve experience. It's going to involve uh, academic knowledge uh, through textbooks. And it's just going to probably be delivered in a in a more clear way because mm-hmm. the knowledge is there. So yeah, I think it, it's important to have a a, a strong knowledge base when it it comes to divorce because you're dipping into a whole pile of different pools and you don't know what those pools are going to be until that person shows up in front of you and, and shows you what they have going on. Interesting. So I talked about the alphabet of credentials that you have. I think we've probably made it like A to D through your credentials is what it sounds like. And the rest of the alphabet might be other episodes that that we can do. Um, But uh, the second part of that question was, how did you come to this intersection? How did you come to be interested in law? Um, And I guess divorce and separation specifically and want to be applying your financial knowledge to that area or to help folks out? Mm-hmm. In 
a professional setting, there's nothing more uncomfortable when somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to. For, for professionals who have a lot of experience, they know the answer. They say, I don't know the answer. I'll get back to you on that. But it can be much easier when you actually do know the answer and you can give people uh, you know, the, the, the information they're looking for at when they ask you. So in my whole, in my career, I've spent a lot of time trying to, you know, broaden my knowledge. So that way I, I can tackle things when they, they come to me versus putting everything in the parking lot and learning and coming back to the client. So I had a client, the, the first, the first time I started thinking about divorce was when a client came to me and he was getting divorced and he said, I don't think this makes any sense. I don't know if I'm getting a good deal. And I remember a sense of anxiety because I was like, well, I don't know anything. I don't know what lawyers are doing, how their discussions go, how things get split. I cannot participate in this conversation. And I felt really nervous about it. I felt uncomfortable and I felt stupid because it wasn't like his financials were part of the question. So I started looking into how I could get more information on the topic. So of course you can go to the CRA and look up lines and lines of, of um, the income tax act, learning about how, how everything's taxed and what happens in divorce and all that good stuff. But it's much easier to seek out associations that specialize in the area. And then I, I bumped up along Side the chartered financial divorce specialist designation wrote the exam and I thought well this is all very interesting it would have been very helpful for me to know this 10 years ago when other clients had maybe brought up the topic and I just kind of brushed them aside and said go talk to your lawyer so you read about this stuff and you think okay well how can I actually apply this to my conversations and then I end up on the internet like everybody else doing more research and I find the CDFA credential and I was like well this one's interesting a bit more meaty than the other one I did or at least that's how it was presented on the internet so I'm like well I should do this one too so I study for this I don't know it's three hour exam study for that one and I learned a bunch more information then I realized that I still didn't really understand enough to give clients advice. I knew the basics now, just the basics, after writing six hours of exams or whatever it was. And I learned that there is something called collaborative law. And I thought to myself, what is this strange thing that keeps popping up? I thought that everybody fights out their divorce, lawyer up on both sides. And you start learning about all these other styles of divorce, mediation, collaborative, arbitration, and I go back to the internet and I'm Googling collaborative law and what pops up, Alberta, collaborative law, boom, I click the button and the group pops up. And I thought, well, maybe this is a place where I can actually figure out what the lawyers are doing. I know what financial people are supposed to be doing in theory, but maybe I can find out what the lawyers are doing on this side. Cause it said other professionals welcome. So <laughs> I like a challenge. You guys know that about me. I was like, well, I'm going to figure this out. I click the button and I get in contact with the person running the, sh- the show. And she says, financial people are welcome. Come on over. I said, great. I filled up the form and I have, 
absolutely no idea what I was signing up for, but I knew I was going to get more information that would help my own personal clients. So I thought, this is a win. If I can just help one of my clients, I'm going to sign up for this. And um, I ended up in a whole pile of classes with lawyers, hours and hours. You poor thing. But I was signing up for <laughs> lawyers would probably find this extremely funny because I didn't know what collaborative law was. And I found myself in interest-based negotiation class with a room full of lawyers. And I had absolutely zero uh, experience understanding. That's okay. A lot of them probably didn't have much experience doing interest-based uh, negotiation either. So you... <laughs> Yeah, it's entirely possible. <laughs> Everyone was so good in the room and I was so horrible, which was actually true. It was, it was, that's a fact. You just and described my law school experience. They kept putting your name up on the board, Kim. I just, I remember that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You're not. Like X's beside it, failing grade. Um, but yeah, I found myself deep very deep in this random world and I had to keep going because I had paid for these courses and I was on this new path. So I'm at work doing my day job as a financial advisor and, ins and doing, you know, insurance contracts, putting them in place for clients. And in my spare time, I'm hanging out with lawyers and taking these seminars on how to negotiate through complicated, um, you know, problems. And mm. then I found myself in mediation. And then I learned very quickly that I did the whole thing backwards because I only learned really what collaborative law was on the very last course I took that was called basic collaborative law. Mm. It would have been best if I had taken that one first. So I knew what I was learning all these skills for. Um, but I mean, it's comical now thinking back about it, um, that I actually just kept pushing through these, these classes and trying to figure out why I was actually doing them. And finally got to the last course, what is collaborative law? And it all started to become very clear to me. Aha! What are those moments? <laughs> So yes, um, the, that's sort of my path into this area and starting to understand what lawyers are doing, what other professionals are involved, what parts people can play, how does divorce work, what are the ways that we can divorce. It was a massive uh, mountain and it was very, very steep right off the bat, but it was fascinating, mm. absolutely fascinating. Okay. So, um, Kim, we've talked about this before, but I'd just like a refresher. Maybe some people didn't listen to the previous episodes. Um, how are, how do you become involved in the divorce process, whether that's through the collaborative process or some other way? Uh, what do you usually, what, what does your involvement usually look like? Yeah, it's, it's, different. It seems to be different all the time. When I originally, you know, started on my little journey here, I was only doing it so I could provide better advice to my own current clients. I didn't see it as a side business or, you know, a, another component of my, my business. And then I realized after going through all these courses that that's probably what 
it was leading towards. When I finished those classes, and I think it's really, really important for people in the financial services to do those and, and learn that collaborative law, because this is your first introduction to the law and to what lawyers are doing. Then you develop a little bit more confidence and you can start to tell people that you have knowledge in this area and you can start to help people with some of their questions and concerns. So the first way that people started reaching out to me was they found my name on the collaborative, uh, the professional collaborative, what's it called, Heather? Alberta Collaborative Professionals Association. Uh, A-F-C-P-E, Alberta Family Collaborative Professionals Edmonton. <laughs> they would, I think they would Google divorce and financials and my name would pop up from that website. So they would call me up and, and tell me where they were at. And it was usually completely and totally stuck. So I at least had at the very beginning the knowledge on describing the ways that they could become unstuck. And then over time, as I started to figure out the process and, and what people were looking for, <laughs> then it just naturally collaborative lawyers would reach out and say, well, what are you, what are you, what do you do exactly? And maybe you could potentially help us in a problem that we're stuck in. And that's kind of where I kind of, I started to branch out into those two areas. It was either people contacting me specifically for a divorce analysis of some kind on the financial side or lawyers coming from a different direction and asking me to participate as a neutral party when discussing the financials of the couple that they were working with. Is that helpful, Evan? Yes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So the, the majority, from, from what I know, the majority of CFDS people and CDFA people, they, they don't start out in that collaborative sp space. They kind of evolve into that over time as they get more involved in divorce and build up their confidence. There are people out there who are not involved in collaborative law at all. Their only experience would be working with people contacting them and just working with that individual person to help them get prepared for their divorce. So there's there's two types of people in the financial services working in the divorce arena. Some are just operating as the financial person working with one one person, one party, and then the other financial people are working in collaborative law with the parties all working together. And there's yeah, the it's different. I don't know how you decide how you're going to build your business and which side you're going to do. But what I found is that it's just naturally just both sides just randomly start to show up when they, um. they search the internet and they find your name attached to financials and divorce. Right. Right. So people could be coming to you on their own and asking you for help, just sort of saying, this is my situation. I'm going, I'm thinking about a divorce. And could you help them look at their big picture and give them some idea um, of what's going on or else they might already be involved in the collaborative process and 
the couple is coming to you to give advice in that arena. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I'll have people reach out to me. Maybe they're do-it-yourself divorce. They've got some financial questions, just can't quite wrap their head around something. They need somebody to help them out. So they'll, they'll reach out asking for a little bit of advice. Other people are just completely filled with anxiety over what's coming and they want to start preparing for that ahead of time, educating themselves, learning about what they have to put together. What will lawyers be asking us for? How do we prepare? I know many, many of the calls that I get are people who are planning their separation and they're trying to get all their ducks in a row before they talk to their spouse about what's happening. So it's sort of like that they're in that pre-planning stage and they want to make sure that they are at the table present and participating in decisions versus being scared because they don't understand where they're at and what's going on. So a lot of people will contact me directly to get up to speed, educated and organized prior to going to the lawyers then sometimes people will contact me. They're already working in collaborative divorce or litigation or whatever form of divorce, but they, they've realized that they need more of an education. I don't need to be brought in as a collaborative person working with both parties. They just need to get brought up to speed and organized. Or their lawyers say, well, this is a complete mess. Or, you haven't done anything. <laughs> you need somebody to sort of tie it all together and get them started. Uh, that will be a reason why people would reach out. And then the third scenario is lawyers reaching out with a participation agreement, a, a, a legal document saying, Kim, please sign off on this. We would like to bring you in to our discussions with both parties. And we need to work through some complicated scenarios. And then I'll, I'll, I'll be brought in that way. So um, it, it's all over. It's all let's, over. Let's talk about preparation for a sec. So how can you help me hide my assets? Oh, yes. I had that question from a client about a month ago. <laughs> I'm just kidding because I'm happily married, luckily, um, as far as I'm aware anyways. So I'm not planning on divorce. But I, I know for sure, I know for sure from talking to clients of mine that some people that are going through divorce – uh, would love to hide assets away from the other party. So can you, uh, how do you do that? That comes up all the time with my own clients or, or people just reaching out to me who I've never met before. A lot of people want to know what that looks like because the first step people probably take is talking to friends and family about their next steps on separating from their spouse. And their family says, well, you got to go after them for everything and don't get taken advantage of and like, you know, get prepared for a war. <laughs> they, they say things like this, Kim. They say, listen, transfer the house to my name yes. once the divorce is all done transfer it back yes right. done yeah, yeah exactly yeah. i think we all hear the same thing that there's these special loopholes yeah. that some people know about because they've got great lawyers and they they do these loopholes and they come out on top and the other person ends up with with 
you know, a lesser deal. So, um, yes, we all get those questions. It's, it's pretty easy for me to talk people through that because there's a paper trail in most types of investment products or financial assets. So right. it's very difficult to hide something if you can get uh, the information that the CRA is keeping on an individual. Um, there's people who plan divorce separation years, years in advance, in which case, yes, there might be some things that you can do, um, but generally lawyers and financial experts are looking for usually about three years worth of documents so we can see what's been the historical pattern of spending money. Has there been a more recent um, switcheroo of accounts or monies? And, and generally, it's very, very difficult to hide things, and, and the court does not like it when you try and hide things and lawyers don't like it when you try and hide things and it always ends up poorly the one type of financial asset that is becoming a lot more interesting and difficult to deal with in separation and divorce are crypto wallets so how do just we gonna ask about that cam that's fascinating okay how do we find these things how are they taxed? Uh -huh. What do we do with all of this? So uh -huh. there are many, many lawyers and many, many accountants who work in um, in a very you know challenging area of finance, and they're bumping up against these questions all the time. So the first thing is: is how do we tax cryptocurrency? Is it is it taxed as business income? Uh -huh. Is it taxed as a capital gain? Right. Are people treating this stuff like crazy? Are they just sitting on it for years? That matters in terms of how it's it's taxed, and and taxation matters in divorce. The second question is: is how do are people able to hide? these uh these wallets from mm -hmm. the courts and from their from their lawyers now the one good thing about this is generally people who are investors in digital coins are very vocal about their investments in digital coins <laughs> like uh they're like crossfit people like crossfit yeah very proud very active and um they want they want people to know that they're engaging in this style of investing and right and quite often it involves in how much money they've made so for for that world i mean there are ways that you can hide those assets they are encrypted it's not easy to track down digital wallets but for for a a married spouse, if they've heard their spouse bring this up as a topic, that would be something that they'd want to bring up with their lawyer. Right. And that would be part of their financial disclosure. Right. Because whether or not CRA has a record of it is not the end of the conversation of whether that's an asset that must be disclosed during a divorce, right? Yeah. 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 Interesting. It's the old adage, uh, how do you know if somebody buys Bitcoin? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> um, I've, I've started asking about it in my practice because it's kind of just, I mean, I guess it's been in the news and whatever else. So it's been on my radar of something that like, oh, hey, maybe people have these things and, and they should Heather, be considered. So. Maybe you can talk to why you don't want to hide assets, really. 
Like you may think you want to hide assets, but you don't really. And maybe you can talk to like why that is. Yeah. I mean, like Kim said, first of all, judges don't like it. So if you get caught doing it or you get, you know, you end up being exposed for hiding it, that's your credibility is going to be shot with the courts. So if they need to make a judgment call in, in your favor or, or not in your favor, um, if you have lost your credibility with them, then there's a very good chance that they won't believe you. If there's a decision that they have to make that's based on your credibility. Um, most things don't end up going to court and are resolved say by way of, uh, separation agreement which is a contract between two people but um i don't know about your separation agreements evan but mine all say this and i think even if they didn't it would be um the judges a judge looking at it later on would say that this agreement could be invalidated if disclosure isn't made so um if you take your bitcoin investor person who doesn't disclose at the time of separation but then is you know, living in their home in Malibu and posting on Facebook because they made a million dollars on their Bitcoin and they bought this beautiful home. Well, then that whole agreement could be thrown out of the window and then you're back at the starting gate. You've lost all credibility. Your agreement is invalid. And then you're, um, you know, yeah, you're back at the starting point as far as division of assets goes, all of that kind of stuff. And most agreements have baked in too that if you don't disclose your assets and then your spouse or the other person um, has to sue on it, that you're paying their lawyers bills as well in addition to court costs all of those penalties that might be assessed against you so there's a lot of just good practical and financial reasons to to just disclose i I mean it is what it is and um yeah and yeah i agree i would just add to what you're saying i think i think the clause and i'm pretty sure we have the same clause in our agreements i think it says something to the effect that because it's a holistic agreement, it, it, you can't just take out the property part and everything else is good to go. Yeah. Um, and usually there's something about spousal support in there. So mm-hmm. while we, there's also like a standard term in contracts that usually say if one thing's invalid, that's the only thing that goes, everything else stays. But this clause in particular says, no, this, the property portion is so important to the holistic contract that if that, if you, if one party has been hiding assets, that invalidates the spousal support portion and, and everything. And you're, and so now you're, you're back to like, oh, and now you might owe like retroactive spousal support as well as, a, you know, whatever it can mm-hmm. be. So mm-hmm. yeah, the, the risks are very real and uh, you will never have a lawyer that's worth their weight, worth their salt as the saying goes, mm-hmm. advise you to hide assets. Anytime somebody suggests that, the, the immediate response is, you can't, don't don't even do it, don't even think about doing it, uh, and it'll hurt you in the long run. Mm-hmm. Nice little segue, mm-hmm. Kim. Uh, that uh, I just thought about that because I'm sure you get asked that a lot, which you confirmed, so. Yes. Yeah, and it's an awkward question because it, it's a it's more of a legal question. And people in the financial services, we aren't giving legal advice. We're not even going to try and come close to that. We don't want lawyers thinking we give legal advice. We don't want people outside of 
us thinking, anybody thinking that we're getting legal advice. So people <laughs> like, oh, what are the ways to hide money? We're just like, like, just don't even bring it up. And, and by the way, pretty much everything has a digital, you know, footprint these days. So don't just don't do it. Yeah. Plus, why, why go through all the work of paying lawyers and doing all this stuff just to be caught and then having to rework everything? Like it just, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like Paul, maybe if you're dealing in cash, like you're selling cocaine, you might be able to hide that, but you're breaking other laws and you have great risk of going to jail. So I don't know that like, that's not a good plan either. No, and I think the same kind of principle applies there is that, you know, the the cryptocurrency person, you know, you're you're often you often know if your spouse is uh got a lot of cash flowing in and out of their wallet as well. Yeah. They often know, right? So Yeah, and Bitcoin isn't uh as universally accepted as cash. And so often you're going to have to cash it out. And um, how do you explain this influx of $50,000 or something? Where did that come from? Or where did the money come from? But where did that money go? Right? Like usually you need some legitimate cash to put into not so traceable assets. So there's often some, some footprint somewhere along the way, right? Where did this $50,000 withdrawal go or whatever, right? So, um, okay, so that's question number one. How do we hide stuff? Or to add on that, there's a lot of people out there who also think their spouse is going to be hiding money. They would never hide money, but they think their spouse is going to hide money. So let's be prepared for this scenario. So Mm. whether people are very well versed in their own finances or not at all, it comes up like a lot that we need to be very aware of this, Kim, that people are, that my Mm. spouse might might be hiding money. So um, I think it goes both ways everybody has you know this mistrust of their go figure yeah yeah when they're getting divorced they don't trust each other very much yeah exactly yeah and sometimes they're right like sometimes they're right the other person is trying to hide assets Uh or fudging their income a little bit or yeah yeah lots of funny stuff that happens maybe one day we'll do an episode on on financial basics and that i think that might be helpful even for people who aren't separating um because sometimes maybe this will segue into another question for you kim is i notice often there's the finance person in a relationship and then the not finance person right and it just sort of naturally seems to happen that one person might have more of that role or knowledge or just probably just even for interest sake than another. So, um, I don't know if you notice that happening in families or in couples and how could that be addressed? Can you help out with that? Yeah. People have different behaviors when it comes to money. Uh, we call them behavioral heuristics in my industry. There's 
people have cognitive biases and emotional biases, and they make decisions uh, based on that. They make decisions based on what they learned as little kids. What did their parents do? So if parents didn't talk about money, then they don't talk about money. Um, if parents told them to save every dollar, they might be the saver in their relationship. Or conversely, they might be the one who's rebelled and is spending a lot in that relationship. <laughs> so very rarely do I see two savers together. I usually see a saver and a spender, mm. and then they kind of balance each other out uh two spenders together is always an interesting <laughs> interesting scenario yeah um but yeah generally people have certain behaviors and there is usually one person who's more interested in the money because everybody everybody can't be involved in everything life is just too busy so mm -hmm. couples tend to split roles and they stick with them over time my in industry also um you know pushes that a little bit as well because if we have 250 clients and they're all couples well i i have to make much less phone calls if i'm only calling the one person versus each person in that relationship about their accounts we know that our clients are working during the day so do i call a couple one's a teacher and one's a businessman call the teacher at her work call the businessman at his job and talk about their same accounts at the same time or do i just pick one person in that household who is who has already told me they want to handle the money side of it. So, right. so there's different behaviors that shape, you know, how we operate in this world and it comes from different, different places. So yeah, absolutely. There, there's quite often one person who is a little bit more up to speed on things than the other person. And I do hear a lot of times women more commonly saying, I was so stupid, Kim. I just let them handle everything and I didn't know what was going on. I wasn't interested. I didn't want to be involved. And now I feel stupid. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't hear that all the time, but mm -hmm. it breaks my heart a little bit because it takes so much time to learn about finance and put every all these pieces together over the course of our life and having to get up to speed for a divorce like that from a, a, a no knowledge standpoint would be absolutely terrifying right and it is like people are tearful and, and and have a lot of anxiety over this because they have to learn so much in such a short period of time yeah and uh you know it tends to be or it can be the case that you know there's another uh saying mo money mo problems <laughs> and uh that can sometimes be the case where if, if the parties are a little bit better off um, then it's more complicated and more difficult to understand the financial picture. Um, so how do you help with something like that, Kim? Yeah, that, that was my major question when I first saw the word divorce and how the heck do I help clients? So the textbooks are pretty clear on the two areas that people struggle with. So the first area that people struggle with is identifying what do I have and what do I owe? So that would be what you guys refer to as your property statement. So identifying all the things we've acquired as a couple and all the debts that we're still paying on, uh, any tax liabilities that, that fit within that bucket and identifying it in a nice clean ledger where we're at, what's our snapshot today? It can be very difficult for people to identify all the stuff they have. Like, I mean, if you had a list saying, do I have this, 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 great, not so hard. But if you're starting with a blank spreadsheet, 
It's like, okay, like, do I, do I have a pension? Do I have more than one pension? Where are my pensions? Like trying to figure out and work your way through your spreadsheet and identifying all the things you have in terms of assets, like hard assets, like skidoos and boats and furniture and, and all that artwork, all that good stuff. Also looking at investments and pensions and then looking at credit cards and lines of credit and all this kind of stuff and tying it up in a nice clean, you know, ledger that's very, very intimidating. It's very hard to do, especially for people who aren't involved in the finances. That's like, I mean, people are just dead in their tracks. They can't even start it because they just don't know where to start. So that's the first component that people who have the CDFA or the CFDS generally start helping people put those pieces together. The second portion is figuring out how are we going to live down the road? What do things cost when we're no longer a couple? So identifying, you know, what would be typical utility bills and what, what does it cost to live on my own if I'm renting, if I'm buying? Can it, is that even an option? How do we play out different scenarios and see which one works the best for us? So there's that forecasting of our future and scenario building side of things. And it starts with a budget. Now, budgets are not fun to do. I have some clients actually who are, have amazing budgets and they're just naturally geared that way to track every little number that comes in, but the majority of people that I work with do not spend their Saturday afternoons <laughs> plugging in what they spent for the month and what their energy bill was and all that. So people who are thinking about separation and divorce, oftentimes they're starting this exercise for the very first time and they're doing it not as a couple. So they can go identify what they were spending when they were together in a household unit, but what's it going to be when they're on their own? And that's very, very difficult to start to think about because there are so many decisions. Do I rent? Do I buy? Can I afford to buy? Will I stay in my own house? Can I keep up the payments in my own house? What does, what does this look like if I'm on my own? And people are suddenly starting to feel very lonely when they start these two tasks. I'm going to be by myself. They're starting to like feel the feelings and it's scary and it's emotional. And as we know, when we get emotional, sometimes our brains just get a little bit mushed up and it's hard to think through things clearly. So Evan, to your point, a lot of times people just need a little bit of help just to start that process, to get them organized, to learn the exercises they need to put together in order to come to the table with lawyers and say, yes, I've got things very clear in my mind. I'm ready to discuss different options. I feel like this is a good place for a public service announcement further to what you were just talking about. And that is um, when you go from one household into two households, neither of those two households will be able to live at the same standard of living as the one household. And I, I've it, it makes things a lot more difficult than it needs to be when one person or both cling to this idea that they're going to be able to live just like they used to live when they were still married. Yeah. Um, and this, of course, is more true the less money they have. When you're living together and you're, okay, you've got a house that you're living in and, and you're paying for a car, let's say. Well, now when someone has to move out from that house, now they have to live somewhere, so they got to rent or buy another house. And um, 
you, but the income didn't change. It's not like all of a sudden the income magically goes up when you split up. The income, the amount coming into the relationship, even though you're now splitting, is still the same. Um, and uh, I mean, I see that a lot. Heather, do you see, have you seen issues there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think intellectually people can get mathematically, you know, there's one pie and it's going to be divided up. Um, but I think when the reality sort of sinks in, um, that can be harder to accept. Um, or even just conceptualize, which is like maybe Kim, where, you know, that role is so helpful is sitting down and looking at budgets and trying to work through that exercise. Um, and I think some people are actually surprised as well um, when they do go through the numbers and then it can help them then understand like, okay, if this is what I'm paying in spousal support, or this is what I'm getting, and these are my expenses, then actually I am going to be okay. I'll still have a little bit to put aside for retirement or holiday or, um, but until that point, I think it can be really terrifying. And I think without going through that exercise, which, you know, you can sort of get to that spousal support amount or whatever, without going through that budgeting exercise. Um, I think people sometimes are still left with a lot of uncertainty. So I think that could be really, really helpful to do that exercise. I remember in one of our collaborative law courses, I think it was, I can't remember which one it was, but I heard the lawyer say something and, and I'm always trying to like listen to lawyers and see what they, what they think about things and, and um, just get different perspectives. And I remember this one lawyer called somebody a spreadsheet client and I was like, oh, I wonder what the spreadsheet client is. And she elaborated and said that there's people who come into the divorce with kind of everything already all figured out on their spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they've got their position. They know yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. And it can be very difficult to sort of peel back that onion and start to, you know, look at other options. And I, I've thought about that scenario a lot because people in my role could really screw that up and create spreadsheet clients. So we would be meeting with somebody and saying, oh, bloop, 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 here's how this goes. You'll be perfectly fine if things go this way. Blah, blah. And I, I'm very conscious of that in my own role because we don't we don't want lawyers to not like us. We want lawyers to see us as an ally and, an, and a helpful unit. So how do we help people learn, like put things together? Um, how do we, you know, create scenarios to keep them more open in the conversation and flexible with different types of decisions versus, you know, painting a really pretty picture for the people that come to us and saying, well, I've got your divorce already designed for you. Just go to the lawyer and you know, tell them you need $4,500 a month. <laughs> yeah. So do you guys, when I say spreadsheet client, does that like, does that resonate with you guys? Do people come to you already sort of mostly solve their side of the equation? Uh, I wouldn't say mostly, but I'm definitely familiar with the spreadsheet personality. There's, yeah, I, I, I get what you mean when you're saying that. That's definitely a shorthand in my mind. What about you, Evan? So I am definitely a spreadsheet person. I would be a spreadsheet client, I'm sure. Uh, and I never thought about, I never heard that before. So, uh, but as you described what it was, it made me chuckle because yeah, for sure I have clients. There are, there is a type of client that comes with the spreadsheet already. That's a thing. Uh, I like those clients. They're, those are good clients. It's because you're a spreadsheet guy. 
<laughs> I guess maybe I'm biased. <laughs> um, what I like about it is that, uh, like, I'm not going to use their spreadsheet. I've got my own spreadsheet. I'm a spreadsheet guy um, that I've, you know, I've uh, inherited from my mentors and developed myself as well, tweaked it myself. And that helps me help them to kind of plan the property division process. But their spreadsheet helps because uh, I can see what they were thinking. It allows me to, to explain to them where maybe they're not, maybe they might need some expl explanation about why it's probably not going to be go that way. Mm. Um, and also it helps me because they've already made an inventory and usually I'm taking stuff off the inventory right. with those types of clients because they've got the couch in there or something. And right. I'm like, we're not talking about the couch unless it's like a, you know, I don't know, $50,000 couch, then we'll talk about the couch, but the couch, the Ikea couch is not going to go on the spreadsheet. I'm sorry. It's out of there. It's not worth it. But, um, yeah. So I help them, Kim, you help them become spreadsheet clients. And, and, uh, I like those clients because yeah. it's kind of gives me a, a, um, it's good that they've been thinking about it and that they've, they've got an inventory, a good mind about what the inventory is. And usually those clients are, have done the process or quite often they've done this process with their spouse. They've done, they've looked at the spreadsheet together and that's good as well because then there's no surprises on this, on the spreadsheet. Uh, at least a little bit, people are on the same page. They may not understand how everything works as far as dividing property, but at least they've got a good idea of, what the property is and what the values are. Yeah. You know, Kim, you made me think of something though, that maybe financials and lawyers can and should be having a bit more, sorry, I called you a financial. I'm good with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having more of a dialogue because I get what you mean as well, right? Like you're conscious that that's, that's your skill set. You know, you're, you can develop this spreadsheet really easily, but um, I think it's your comment is an interesting one that you don't want to also be or be seen as putting people into a position necessarily, right? And they might have that position then and then go into the meeting and realize, well, this is the budget we're working with, right? So sometimes budgets are, well, this is what I need to live. The converse can also be true too. Sometimes it's just like, this is what you need to live on, right? And that's kind of what you get. So that's... I think that's an interesting point that like maybe we need to be communicating with one another a little more or working together sometimes um, well, on those kinds why, of things. That's why I brought up that point earlier about how people in the financial services getting into this area, I think it's so important for them to be involved in collaborative law because it's their only access to, um, you know, discussions with lawyers and trying to find out the best way to work with lawyers. So what I had learned from that one course and hearing that one lawyer was it's important to put things in the joint column that we don't want to take a position on. So mm. we don't need to put it in one person's name versus the other person's name. If it truly is something that could be um, flagged as, you know, a combative discussion or difficult to decide who's got what. So I've certainly made edits in the way that I have conversations with people to make sure that, you know, if it's, it's, a, if it's a Suzuki dirt bike and the one spouse has never been on a dirt bike in their life well we could probably 
probably put the Suzuki dirt bike in, in the one column. But right. if it's the marital home, let's just keep that in the joint side and you can take that up with the lawyers later. So there are little things that we, we pick up from on lawyers and, and hope that we're doing a good job. Um, but the industry really is in, is in its infancy in terms of connecting multiple professions into this area, trying to figure out what each person wants. I, I remember when I first saw the Schedule A FL17, I think that's what it's called, and it tells people to put all their assets into this Word document, and there's no lines. Oh, it's you just, brutal. It's so it's bad. The worst document ever. I hate <laughs> it so much. I hate so it. Bad. I think we can all agree we all hate this thing, mm-hmm. and I thought, when I saw this, I was like, Dear God, how are people getting divorced supposed to create an organized document and an organized system if they're trying to, with a pencil, write in for like in a box that can only hold three sentences? They have to put fifty items, and I yeah. thought, well, this is this is crazy. I think I think yeah. the financial services need to be more involved in this <laughs> exercise. Yeah, lawyers and judges are not as Heather uh, dubbed them, financials. Um, and so I, I guess to you, Cam, have you seen any other frustrations from coming the other way from the lawyers to you? Like, okay, yeah, the, that's called the Statement of Income Assets and Liabilities. Um, and uh, it's ugly, terribly formatted and cumbersome. Those are the things I hate about it. And then, yeah, if you have a lot of finances, it can be difficult. Like, it's, it's just gonna look even worse. Yeah. Um, but is there anything else where like you, you talked about being worried about you kind of unintentionally in, entrenching somebody in a position? Um, have you seen annoyances coming from the other side? No, because this is all a very new system where financial people are involved in divorce. I mean, it's not that new, but it's new. There are so few people in the financial services who've had the courage to go and learn this and dip their toe in and get involved that there are very few people that lawyers can even have a conversation with. There are quite a number of more people in out east than in the western provinces who have started to do more of this type of work. But there, it's very, very difficult to find financial neutrals. It's very difficult to find CDFAs and CFDS who actively work in divorce. They'll have the credential, but they don't know what lawyers are looking for. They don't know the documents that people need to work through. So I think there is, you know, a lot of, a lot more room for, for people to come to the table and say, well, how can I help you out and make your life easier? And how can I help you out and make your life easier so that we, you know, create a smoother system, maybe clear up the courts a little bit. Like people are backed up because they're, they're, they can't make decisions. Maybe involving other professionals would help solve some of those problems if they did it early on. I think lawyers aren't quite sure how to work with financial neutrals. They're worried that it'll be an additional cost. They're worried what value these people will add because they don't actually know what somebody in with those credentials would be doing. <laughs> so it's like, why would I send my client to this person? I don't even know what they do. I can just do it. I'll just assign them homework. They can do it. Why would we need to involve this professional? And I think it does take the industry 
coming together a little bit more and having, you know, meetings where we're like, show me when you sit with your client, what exactly do you talk about or what do you do? What can you present that will help me as the lawyer work through this and kind of, you know, make it more collaborative because it's, it, I think it really is just in its infancy right now. And I think lawyers have so many things that they don't know about what, how a financial person could help. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so how do I, and not just me, but anybody, how would I get you involved in files that I'm working on, Kim? What does that look like? Because I really, I, I, uh, I send people away, Oh, talk to your financial advisor, talk to your, insurance broker or whatever, or talk to your accountant. I don't give tax advice because the income tax act is way too thick. Um, and it's such an easy place to get into trouble. So I'm just, I'm just not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Lawyers commonly won't. There's specialist lawyers that, you know, that, that that's all they do. Yeah. So how would I get you involved in that process? Mm-hmm. Very difficult to do. So in the financial services, we wear three hats. So we're either a financial advisor doing investment work. We're either a financial planner doing financial planning and forecasting, or we're an insurance advisor and we're talking about your liabilities and trying to fill those gaps. So, so what people going through divorce and separation need is the financial planner person. Now, financial planners generally don't do a lot of divorce work. They don't have, many don't have the CDFA or CFDS. They would be worried to get involved because they don't know what the process is. They don't know what, like, sheets you guys are looking to be filled out. They don't know how divorce works. Like, they don't, they would assume that you guys would know everything about the finances. So why are you coming to them? Like that would be a typical attitude on the financial planning side. There is a very, very small component in the financial planning uh, world on divorce. They talk about how spousal support is taxed and how child support is taxed. And that is about the extent of what people in the financial services know about divorce. Mm. So where do these lawyers find somebody who could actually, you know, get that phone call and be like, oh, of course, I know what to do. I can get you started. Here's some homework. If you don't want to, you know, if you're tight on money, here's some homework, just do this and go back to your lawyer or here, let, let's work through it together. If that's the kind of, if you need more handholding and more education. So the industry is, is really not involved in divorce. They don't understand that there is, could be a huge industry there um, to help out lawyers and just, you know, get things moving more smoothly. You guys have to spend less time educating people on what an RSP is. You can just send them to be a financial person. They'll get them all up to speed and and back to the lawyer. So Evan, I think that's an incredible question and I don't really know how to answer it because even for me in my own business, I have very little time to do this type of work. I would generally refer it to another person because I'm busy doing other stuff. Mm. So I think what needs to be positioned in this podcast is the financial service industry needs to get more involved, educate more professionals and have a bigger pool of people. So that way lawyers had like, you know, professionals they could refer to because it would be really tough for you guys. If you're like, Oh, call these three people. And then your client calls them and they're all busy and they can't take them on. And then I can't tell you, like, I would love to not have to, um, wade through my client's 
and the other party's financial disclosure like that this is this is what I do right now right like I I have to go through and make sense of it and kind of sometimes audit it I happen to have this file where they have together like nine different bank accounts two of them US dollar bank accounts mm -hmm. and there's transactions going all over the place mm -hmm. and and I'm seeing money shift around from accounts and I'm like I'm not I'm not a forensic accountant but this is raising some red flags you know, and luckily in this case, my client was aware of everything and it was her, her spouse that is doing the moving around and she's aware of it and everything's above board. So I'm, I'm comforted there. But the point just being, I'm not a forensic accountant. I, I, I could miss things. I'm not providing advice. I would love to kind of say, here's the financial disclosure. Here, yeah. And then, you know, I, and then you kind of could help them wade through that and make sense of it all. And then it comes back to me in like a, a package that is easy for me to look at and help provide the legal advice. I would love to hand that, to push that work to somebody. I'm annoyed that you are telling me right now, you don't have time to do that. Now that you just told me. <laughs> You've identified how wonderful that would be. <laughs> but it's also not cheap to have me do that. And it's not like, that's not legal training that I'm using to do that. So it doesn't yeah. make sense to pay me legal fees to do that. Yeah. I'd be happy to not do it. Yeah. My firm there. So everybody who does this type of work is going to come up with their own type of pricing. So for people like me who work at big investment firms, our firms will dictate how we can charge. So Raymond James says $150 an hour for this type of work. So if you pin that against what it costs for a lawyer to help you out with this uh, type of work. It's significantly better. cheaper to have the financial person who would not only do it faster, it would probably be more correct and organized with software that's designed for this type of work. Oh, so it's, yeah. it's a win-win. You're just making yeah. it matter. The proper skill set is being applied then to that task, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. but what the, the good news, though, is that there are people who do this clear across the country. And my, my, what my vision is, is that people, lawyers can work with different financial people from any province to help them with this work over Zoom or Teams or whatever virtual network they're on. And, and we can sort of share resources. So if I'm busy for three months of the year and I can't do any work, well, I could refer to somebody I know. Well, we have somebody in St. Albert at Prospera Solutions who does this work. She's great at it. Perfect. Let's send those over there and, and just build more of a relationship with the financial, uh, you know, divorce analysts across the country and refer back and forth because there aren't that significant uh, tax differences between provinces. We could probably, you know, collaborate more and, and split the work so that way there would be somebody who could always take that that type of file. I, I know in my business, I'm purposely trying to design things right now so I can free up time to do more of this work, but it takes, it takes time to, to find the right people to hire, to train, to bring on, to do all that. So I've identified this as a pretty important area that we need to spend more time on in the financial services. And it, it, you know, it's only going to get easier the more that people like me collaborate with people like you guys and say, well, what would you like from me? Like, how could I help you lawyers out? And how would you like it organized? Mm -hmm. I want to know what you want to see. And I'll just do that and then hand it off to you and off you go. And then we just keep moving people through. Um, 
in you know the best. The way only thing I can compare this to, Kim, is. Um, uh, I was lucky enough bef back the year before COVID to go to, to Naples and I had pizza from uh, a margarita pizza from McKelly's there, which is the restaurant featured on Eat, Pray, Love. Okay. And when I put that pizza in my mouth, it was so good that I was immediately angry that I'd never eaten it before <laughs> and that I would never eat, well, maybe not never eat again, but you know, couldn't eat it at home anytime I wanted to because, you know, Famosa was good, but it's not, it was not the same. It was yeah. like mind blowing experience. So, I mean, you're not quite at the level of real Neapolitan pizza, but I'm still like, this is such an, this, this is such, something that I want to immediately incorporate into my practice. Um, and there's not enough people doing it. So, uh, but you know, it, and from what I'm understanding from you, um, I just want to make sure that I got it right, that it would be the kind of situation where you can help with that financial disclosure process to take all that financial disclosure and make sense of it um, to uh, prepare a cohesive report that can then help the clients and the lawyers, you know, move on to the legal analysis of what to do next. Is that right? Do I have that right? That is correct. So gathering documents, tidying them up, putting the information into the buckets that we need them in with notes on the side, describing what questions we have and what law what lawyers need to start, you know, thinking about because the financial neutral or the financial divorce analyst says, I don't know what to do with this. So I'm just going to put it here where you address it with your client. There's an, in an interesting, very interesting conversation about a year ago with IBM. So IBM is building an infrastructure for divorce and they're building out this platform that will have clients loading up their documents in this one platform, having sort of a workflow process for financial people and lawyers to kind of take a file from the beginning to the end. And I think they've been working on this for quite some time. It'll be interesting to see what they roll out because um, it just seems like there's documents all over the place. And the more professionals you get involved, the more documents go over the place. And mm -hmm. it would be nice if you brought on a divorce file and, and said, okay, we're going to load all the documents into the one spot. All the professionals will sign off that it's confidential. We can all access these things and work through this workflow as, as a unit and get it done clean and easy and, and without um, any mistakes. So I don't know. I have all these visions of, of divorce in the future being way easier, but I think that it's going to take a while. Well, um, yeah. you could at least, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Heather. You go. I was just going to say, first of all, I love your vision, Kim. I'm on board. You let me know what we need to do to recruit people. Um, but I guess it brings up in my mind, like, until this day in the future where IBM uh, has a wonderful platform and Kim has cloned herself so that there's 12 of her. If you were a person watching or listening to this podcast, what could you be asking your financial advisor that you might already have on board that you trust and knows your situation? Is there anything that they, you could be asking them to do or asking them questions to help them through, help them help you through their separation? Mm. I think that the typical financial planner, financial advisor 
wouldn't know what to say to their clients unless they've maybe been through a divorce themselves and are, are familiar with the types of documents that people need to get together. Uh-huh. I think they'd be very intimidated if their client just came to them and said, get me prepared for my divorce. I'm going to go see the lawyer. I think the best route for people would be to Google CDFA, CFDS, find somebody local, not local. It doesn't matter and say what, you know, what can you tell me about what I need to get together? Can you, or can you help me put things together before I go to the lawyer? Or my plan is to go to the lawyer this week. Would you potentially be able to help me put things together once I've met with them and I have some idea of what I need to do? Okay. So what I've noticed in the past, and you guys can tell me if I'm right or wrong, most lawyers have the same ask. Like it's a spreadsheet that says we need you to gather all of these documents. There's like, I don't know, maybe 200 items on this this list and various point form bullet points and things that apply or don't apply if your business yeah. or not yeah and then people will look through it gather these documents and start to put it together in maybe a cloud-based file and then once they've got that together then they're kind of like stuck then they're like okay got the documents now what do I do I think at that point if they are feeling really stuck and they're anxious then to pick up the phone and call the CFDS or the CDFA person and say can you help me put all this together my lawyer needs me to be organized for our first meeting Mm -hmm. and then that's when that person will jump in generally they'll help with that what do I have what do I owe spreadsheet without being positional and then helping um, start to build a budget so what what do things cost in the future what do things look like? Because the, the majority of the financial planning software that we have is designed for scenarios. So we may have different scenarios discussed in those legal meetings. So where we keep the family home, we don't keep the family home, or right. we have the kids or we don't have the kids or whatever that looks like. It isn't too difficult to clone one scenario, make a couple changes and say, okay, now that you've met with your lawyer and things look to be going this direction, here, let's work through this and see what this looks. So that way, when they go back to the lawyer, for that next meeting, they feel comfortable talking about where they might have problems with it or what works about it. So, so that's what that professional would be prepared to do to, to run scenarios and say, okay, if you make this decision now, what do things look like 35 years down the road when you're going to retire? Does that look okay? So now it looks okay, but does it also work down the road? If it doesn't, and there's nothing we can do about it, it's much better for that client to know that now versus to think, oh, I've got this great settlement or this great divorce agreement right now and think that they're going to be able to retire at 55. And we're like, no, that's, you're going to be working till 65, 70 based on this agreement. So get on board with that because that's what's going to be playing out here. Mm. Very calloused, Kim. Very calloused. Doing that planning, I think, is pretty important um, to give people confidence in in their meetings to negotiate their agreements. Right. So um, if you don't know, Kim is the one that puts the links in places. So, Kim, I'm really hoping that you're going to have in the resources here some links to um, both, like, resources for CFDS and the other one, the other four letter acronym. It's not a TLA. It's a FLA. And, um, but also for, uh, you know, I want to be able to reach out to, 
you or, I mean, I know how to get all of you, but you or, uh, you know, the person you mentioned in St. Albert, right? The re people across the country that are trained that I can reach out to, to kind of offload the financial disclosure stuff to like, that's now my plan. Because it's going to be cheaper for my clients and help. It's going to be better. Help and better. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think all, job, so. Links. All, it, all it takes is the financial person just picking up the phone with that lawyer and saying, what is it that you're looking for, looking for? And let me like, tell me, and then we'll, we'll do that for you. So then you just have a clean process. Every time that lawyers, clients call you, you know, exactly what that lawyer is looking for. You put it together, done and move things along. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great, like, I mean, it's an amazing thing if we can just get it going and just have more discussions with lawyers, financial people and saying, okay, let's get on the same page here, people. Let's give you what you're looking for in the time frame that you need. And then we all just kind of work together to do it. So I will definitely post on our a2jpodcast.com uh, website, the uh, spreadsheet that I I use with people to help identify what they have, what they owe. I will put on links to the CFDA, CDFA website, the CFDS website, where you can search for people. I will also include collaborative uh, associations across the country, and um, people should be able to find somebody to help them out. Awesome. Super. Let's get that schedule A up there too. No, I'm just <laughs> just well, we have to now. They got it. They, they got to see People need to see that document. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, I also have like a protected uh, spreadsheet that does all these calculations to help people um, plan the division process. Um, I don't know if we'll post that. Maybe. Uh, you can take a look at it because if you already have a spreadsheet like that, then there's no point in putting two of them. So well, maybe I'll send that to you so you can take a look at it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this has been a great session. Uh -huh. I've learned uh, a lot about how you help um, in this process. And honestly, like that, like the name of our podcast is Access to Justice and having other professionals like yourself that can do some of the work um, at that isn't the legal work at fees that are lower than lower than lawyers fees increases that access because now now people can get the same product and it, it doesn't cost as much so I think this has been great yeah and it's so valuable for financial people to have lawyers on the sidelines too I find that a lot of times people are looking for legal advice but they don't want to pay for it which puts the don't financial person <laughs> it puts a financial person in a really awkward spot because people keep asking these legal questions. Mm -hmm. You're like, I can't answer that. Like you need to go. The next step is to go to the lawyer. Yeah. And when a lawyer is involved, like it's such a relief because you're like, oh, I don't know the answer to this, but the lawyer is going to know. So you just put a little note and off it goes. Uh, and the lawyer will work through that with the client. It's just, it's just such a perfect match to have. And we, we haven't even talked about the third component of divorce. Like there's the financial people, the legal people, and then the mental health people involved. Like if you have a group of people who knows how each person operates, you know, how to bring them in, what to expect. That is the ultimate situation and professional as professionals needs to do more to connect and figure out what each how each other's 
does things, how you bring somebody in, what does it look like? Um, so we, de we definitely have work to do to help people out more, but I think we're just, we're getting there. I think we're, we're getting there. People are getting more financial. People are starting to, to get more interested in, in try and figure stuff out. And once lawyers realize that we aren't going to be a hindrance, that we're actually going to, going to help, then I think it'll just be helpful for everyone. Hmm. So, if you're a family lawyer out there, call up your neighborhood uh, financial advisor and, you know, make friends with them <laughs> and vice versa. If you're a financial advisor, call up a family lawyer, maybe have a chat with them and maybe we can get some conversations started and get some of those relationships going. Um, I, I think that can only help people that are going through this process, help preserve their relationships, their assets, all of that stuff yeah good we're not so scary right you're not very scary lawyers are awesome family lawyers i only know family lawyers they're they're so wonderful they're they're communication wizards they care i like it's just not what i thought i was getting before when i was jumping into collaborative law i was gonna i thought i was gonna get mean people who only wanted money <laughs> from their clients just wanted to bill up time so they could you know have fancy cars and all this kind of stuff and then what i encountered was the complete opposite if everything about be like joining this legal world has been eye-opening for me i am i think family lawyers are amazing i think they're worth every penny and i am so grateful that i can work with you guys and, and learn from you um it's just it's been it's been such a such a great opportunity for me. Well, thanks for saying that, Kim, because, you know, um, lawyers definitely get a bad rap in the, the domain of public opinion sometimes. And I, too, kind of I've met a lot of great people like Heather who are good lawyers and good people who are kind and generous and wanting le legitimately to do the best for their clients and are not interested in taking shortcuts or or um, making money at the expense of their client having a bad experience or like just writing their client along just to, for a payday. I, I, I'm not aware of anybody um, that does that. So I agree with you. I think it's a pretty good group, but anyways, I think we're, that's uh, Heather, you have any closing thoughts? No, I think we're all lucky to be able to learn from one another and, uh, yeah. Oh, shucks. You guys. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for having me on your program as uh, the guest speaker today. I value this opportunity. I hope more financial people will hear this podcast and get involved. And uh, it's nothing but a welcoming community. We want you to get involved. We want you to take those exams and cozy up to lawyers and find out how to help them. So that way, everybody, every lawyer can have the opportunity to um, you know, pursue this this type of financial help if if it's the right thing for their client. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, thanks again, Kim, for being our uh, ever-present special guest. Sure, yeah. do appreciate you. And uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. And 
We'll talk to you again next week. Next time. See ya. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallory Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Stole my heart from my lips. That was it. It is yet this far.